1: Today's show is sponsored by Audible, the home of over 150,000 audiobooks. To get a free, yes, free audiobook, go to audibletrial.com forward slash queens and go find yourself something awesome to listen to today. This week, I'm going to recommend The Anarchy by Stuart Binns. Unlike the books that I've suggested so far on this show, this is a work of historical fiction, part of Binns' Making of England series. It's a retrospective, about a knight loyal to the Empress during the Great Civil War that we're about to dive into. History from a non-fiction perspective can sometimes miss out on a lot of the noise and the intrigue that fiction can bring, and Binz's book is really good at bringing that out. And it's free, when you sign up for a trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash queens. And, better yet, by doing so, you'll be showing your support for the Queens of England podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Queens of England podcast. Episode 7, Matilda of Boulogne, the all-action, badass, sweet-talking, soldier-leading warrior diplomat. As we saw in the previous episode, the sinking of the white ship in 1120 was far more than just a personal tragedy for the parents of all who lost children to the waves it completely changed the course of English history. Gone were Henry's plans to hand off the throne to his son, he now had to try and find an heir from somewhere else. Now, plan A was to father a new heir himself, and that was the reason behind his marriage to Adeliza of Louvain, but he wasn't just putting all his eggs in that particular basket. His daughter Matilda was already empress of the Holy Roman Empire after having married Emperor Henry V in 1114, and any children that she had with him could also claim the English throne. This was plan B. Sadly though, like her father, despite both parties being fertile, her marriage to Henry was childless. So much for plan B. So where could Henry possibly find a plan C? Henry had no shortage of nephews around who would be of age to take over the throne. Now nephews were not as good as sons, especially as it's difficult to say which nephew would have a better claim than another, but they were an option for him. Let's remember that while now we see inheritance by the eldest legitimate son as being the norm for the Middle Ages, back in this period, things were far less clear. William the Conqueror had been born illegitimate, yet he had inherited. Neither William Rufus nor Henry I had been the eldest of his living sons when they took the throne, yet they had inherited too. Indeed, the throne of England had not been passed from father to eldest son since Arthur Canute had succeeded Canute in 1040. The throne was won by the person that could convince enough people with swords and shields that they were legitimate. Now, Henry wanted to avoid civil war, and so he sought to find a nephew that he thought able to take over from him should he die without heirs, and his daughter were to too, and he alighted on Stephen of Blois. As it turns out, he would have done much better to have left the situation well alone. Stephen was the son of Henry's sister Adela, and was therefore a grandson of William the Conqueror. He had inherited the county of Blois from his namesake father, who had died while on crusade. Blois lay to the south of Normandy, and was a strategic ally, but Stephen was still too minor a noble to be taken seriously as a potential claimant to the throne. Henry needed to arrange a strong marriage alliance for him, and he did so in 1125, through marrying him to pretty much the richest and noblest heiress around, Matilda, Countess of Boulogne. Matilda was born in the city of Boulogne sometime around 1105 to count Eustace of Boulogne and his wife Mary of Scotland, the sister of Matilda of Scotland. This gave her royal blood of both a Norman and Anglo-Saxon variety, a shot in the arm for any claimant to the English throne. She was therefore the Empress's first cousin, making this a true family feud in the making. Like Adeliza, we know almost nothing about Matilda's early life. Indeed, we don't even know for sure what year she was born in. We know that she was an only child, which probably would have meant she would have received an unusually comprehensive education for a woman, as she was expected to inherit her father's title and lands. In situations like this, the aim was not for the woman to inherit the title and rule in her own right. That would be crazy. What usually would happen is that the daughter would inherit the title, and her husband would exercise it in Uri which translates to in the right of his wife. This was a common way for low-born favourites of the king to gain greater status and wealth. Matilda lost her mother in 1116, and then in 1125, her father Eustace, knowing his days were numbered, started shopping around for a husband for his daughter. The antenna of every noble family in Europe would have been pricked, but given that she had such royal blood, the assent of the King of England would be essential for any marriage that Matilda would have. Any husband of hers would have a strong claim to the English throne, and if an enemy were to claim it, it would mean war. Boulogne did not just hold an important position on the continent, containing as it did the Port of Calais. It also brought with it the so-called Honour of Boulogne, which were basically extensive and rich landholdings in the south-east of England. Henry's match of Stephen and Matilda would not have been made on a whim. He chose his favourite nephew for this charge because he felt that he could trust them to do the right thing when the time came. Now, this is a good moment to make a correction. In the last episode, I said that Stephen and Matilda got married, when they fortuitously got off the white ship just before it departed on its short and disastrous voyage. In fact, they both just happened to be on at the same time. I got overtaken by the poetry of the whole thing and forgot to check my facts. I'm sorry. They were in fact married in 1125, but in the same year, something happened that changed everything. Henry's daughter's husband, Emperor Henry V of the Holy Roman Empire, died, freeing her from her obligations as Holy Roman Empress, and Henry started to contemplate the unthinkable. Could he, after all, pass the throne off to his child? To a woman? Could he make Matilda a queen regnant? He gathered his nobles at his court, and in January 1126, he declared Matilda as his heir to the throne of England and the Duchy of Normandy. Not in the name of any future husband or hypothetical child, in her own right. A proper queen, as we would understand it today. Now, he knew he was taking a bit of a gamble, and so for some insurance, he got his nobles all to swear to defend her claim and acknowledge her as their once and future queen. The first person to make that oath was her uncle, King David of Scotland. The second? Stephen of Blois, an oath he must have taken through gritted teeth. He had gone from being the heir presumptive to being just another noble, and a noble forced to acknowledge a woman as his queen. He must have been pissed. Matilda of Bloyne can't have been thrilled either. With her noble lineage, she would have had dynastic ambitions of her own, and she would have been the ideal match for any male heir to the throne. When Henry matched her to Stephen, she would have expected her to have become Queen of England, but now this seemed an impossibility. The two of them sat down and plotted their next move. The next few years saw Stephen and Matilda consolidate their holdings, biding their time before Henry were to pop his clock. The Empress then proceeded to play directly into their hands. Henry matched his daughter with Geoffrey, the Count of Anjou, knowing that if she were to give birth to a male heir with him, this would only serve to strengthen her claim. Her marriage in its early days, though, was rocky to say the least, and things got worse when the Empress raised her banners in revolt against her father. She and Geoffrey wanted to take control of Normandy so as to give her a stronger base of support, and when Henry angrily refused, they supported a rebellion against him, and it was while he was there, fighting against the armies of his future heir and daughter, that he died. If Stephen had learned anything from his uncle Henry, it was how to get the throne if your claim is dodgy. You have to 1. Have a wife with royal blood, and number 2. Move very, very quickly. The Empress found herself in the same position as her uncle Robert Kurtos had been in 35 years before, stuck on the continent while her rival quickly crossed the channel and had himself crowned king. But the Empress was not going to let her impudent cousin get away with his treachery. And so, anarchy ensued. Now the details of the anarchy are for a different podcast, though it is a fascinating story. If you would like to read more about it, I have some suggestions in the bibliography that goes with this episode. You can find it at www.queensofenglandpodcast.com forward slash bibliography. But this podcast is about queenship, so we're going to focus on Matilda of Boulogne's contribution to the chaos. Because of the number of Matildas around, for the avoidance of confusion, I will be referring to Matilda of Boulogne as either Matilda or the Queen throughout, while I'll be referring to her adversary as simply the Empress. Matilda of Boulogne would be the final consort of England to be called Matilda in history, and about bloody time too. The Anarchy consumed the entirety of Matilda's time as Queen of England, and therefore her queenship was always going to have a distinct flavour from that of her predecessors. The other two previous married kings, William I and Henry I, had spent a lot of their time subduing rest of subjects and nobles, and there are a few occasions at which we could say that England and Normandy were in a state of civil war, but nothing like the Anarchy. This was a conflict that ran for nearly 20 years between two very evenly matched sides, and only ended when both sides essentially ran out of the means to continue the fighting. The Matildas of Flanders and Scotland essentially acted as the king's trusted lieutenant, his most trusted functionary, someone who could be relied upon to run things in the peaceful part of the country while he dealt with the part that was up in flames. But what happens when the whole country is up in flames? For a queen to be involved, she would have to be involved in, you know, real fighting. And that was crazy. But it happened. Another feature that marks out Matilda from her predecessors is the character of her husband. William and Henry were both strong and forceful personalities, who ruled to a great degree through the force of will and victory in the field. Henry I has gone down in history as a more educated and enlightened man than many of his fellow monarchs, but he was as brutal and violent as any other when it came down to it. Stephen was not like them. For a start, he was quite sickly. You may remember that he only got off the white ship thanks to a bout of diarrhoea, but this was not the only time that illness would strike, and this hamstrung him on several occasions. While William and Henry were forces of nature, Stephen was far more placid and good-humoured. He actually seemed like a pretty decent guy, but decent guys rarely get far in medieval Europe. He was not really a man of action, and often seemed hamstrung by indecision, leading him to lean on his trusted advisers. And no one was more trusted than his wife. When Stephen rushed across the Channel to seize the throne in 1135, he left his wife behind, because he knew that his accession would not be secured without a fight. And indeed, he had to face an invasion for the Empress's cousin David I of Scotland, which he managed to defeat, and deemed the situation safe enough for his wife to travel over to England and be crowned Queen of England, in 1136. This was a huge propaganda ceremony. Stephen's coronation had been a small and hasty affair. This coronation was lavish, and part of a huge Easter court gathering designed to show off the new king and queen as the true and rightful rulers of England and Normandy. According to Henry of Huntingdon, quote, "'Never was there one to exceed it in numbers, "'in greatness, in gold, silver, gems, costume, "'and in all manner of entertainments.'" Now, the early years of the Civil War sold mostly raids from Scotland, Wales, and Anjou into Stephen's realm, but nothing too sinister. However, 1138 saw an explosion of activity in the war, when Robert of Gloucester rebelled against Stephen. Robert was an illegitimate son of Henry I, and would rapidly show himself to be the most able general in the entire Civil War. He had originally like Stephen sworn to protect the claim of the Empress, but initially he had supported the King, but now he switched sides, which not only saw his lands in the West Country rebel, but also the county of Kent, which contained many of the crucial Channel ports. While Stephen launched a brilliant campaign to retake the West, it was left to the Queen to retake Kent, the first time that I can see in medieval history of a woman being put in charge of a significant military campaign. Crazy times called for desperate measures. With her homeland of Boulogne just across the Channel, Matilda ordered soldiers and ships from the county to come and besiege the port of Dover, taking the city later that year. The siege is described by Audring Vitalis. Quote, the Queen besieged Dover with a strong force on the land side and sent word to her friends and kinsmen and dependents in Boulogne to blockade the foe by sea. The people of Boulogne proved obedient and gladly carried out their lady's commands and, with a great fleet of ships, closed the narrow straits to prevent the garrison from receiving any supplies. Matilda then moved up north to Durham, where she met the King of Scots. David had recently been routed in the Battle of the Standard, but he still represented a significant threat to the kingdom. She negotiated with him a lasting peace treaty, which saw her give away the earldom of Northumberland to David's son Henry, and Carlisle and Cumberland to David himself, but crucially England held on to the border fortresses and Newcastle and Bamborough. The papal legate to England was delighted with the peace deal, saying that the Queen's, quote, shrewdness and eloquence prevailed. This deal essentially took the Northern Front out of the war. Stephen would be hard-pressed enough dealing with the Empress's forces in the south and west of England and in Normandy. He would have been totally encircled if there had not been for this treaty, a deal that kept the Anglo-Scottish border quiet for the next 20 years. This piece was arranged just in time for the Empress's invasion of England in 1139. If you recall from the last episode, they landed at Arundel at the behest of the dowager Queen Eliza, Although Stephen had had her trapped, he let her go, possibly thanks to some high chivalric ideals, and she escaped out west to plan her next move. What happened next was the main phase of the anarchy, as in droves bishops and lords began to flock to the Empress's banner, At this point, the Queen was sent away again on diplomatic business. The King and Queen had a great natural resource for attracting foreign allies and recalcitrant nobles, five royal children, and Matilda exploited their potential with little regard for age difference. Her two-year-old daughter Matilda was betrothed to the 31-year-old Count Walleron of Moulin, one of the most powerful nobles in the land. There was even a marriage betrothal ceremony, which must have been just about the most bizarre thing anyone had ever seen. The marriage in the end never went ahead, as little Matilda died a year later, and was quickly followed by her brother Baldwin. But this still left three unmarried kids, and Matilda was the one to arrange their marriages. Now their eldest son William was matched with the wealthy heiress Isabel of Warren, a match that brought with it the huge estates of the Warren family, a crucial financial boost for the royal cause. The surviving daughter Mary was destined for a life in the church, and would only later marry after being abducted from her abbey, by a rather unsavoury character named Mathieu of Alsace. This left the eldest son an heir apparent to the English throne, Eustace. Matilda personally negotiated the terms of his marriage alliance between him and Constance, the sister of King Louis VII of France, French, in 1140. In return for a mountain of English gold, Louis bestowed the title of Duke of Normandy on Eustace, which was technically on his right, but this claim could not be enforced. This also ensured that Louis would not take advantage of the turmoil in Normandy and seek to gain territory, and could lead to French intervention in support of Stephen's cause. It was a wonderful bit of statesmanship, and that Matilda was trusted to do this is pretty extraordinary. I'm sure at this point Matilda was sick of all of diplomacy, but she was recalled from France back to England to take part in a peace conference in Bath later in 1140. Now this peace conference was a bit of a farce, because neither side really had any intention of giving much up. Robert of Gloucester represented his sister, the Empress, and the Queen, along with Archbishop Theobald of Canterbury, represented Stephen. As expected, the negotiations quickly broke down, and the two sides prepared to fight it out on the battle.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers.
1: King Stephen was besieging the city when his army was attacked by a force led by Robert of Gloucester. The combination of surprise and high-level defections saw the royal army completely surrounded. What happened next is related brilliantly by the chronicler Roger of Howden. No rest, no breathing time was granted them, except in the quarter where stood that most valiant king, as the foe dreaded the incomparable force of his blows. The Earl of Chester, on perceiving this... Envying the king his glory, rushed upon him with all the weight of his armed men. Then was seen the might of the king, equal to a thunderbolt, slaying some with his immense battle-axe, and striking others down. Then arose the shouts afresh, all rushing against him, and him against all. At length, through the number of the blows, the king's battle-axe was broken asunder, Instantly, with his right hand, drawing his sword well worthy of a king, he marvelously waged the combat, until the sword as well was broken asunder. On seeing this, William of Keynes, a most powerful knight, rushed upon the king, and, seizing him by the helmet, cried in a loud voice, Hither! All of you! Come hither! I have taken the king! With the king captured, the Empress was triumphant, and with the support of most of the powerful nobles of the kingdom, she proclaimed herself Domina angelorum lady of the english making her the first female king of england the royal cause was surely lost even stephen's own brothers deserted him and flocked to the court of the triumphant empress there was no man left powerful enough to stand against the new regime luckily for stephen matilda of boulogne was no man while the battle of lincoln was taking place matilda was campaigning in the south of england the first thing she did was to write to the Empress, requesting that her husband be released from captivity. This was a mere show of a letter, though, as neither woman had any intention of coming to peace with each other. Indeed, the Empress's reply to the Queen was riddled with, quote, "...harsh and insulting language." Queen Matilda did not give up hope of a peaceful solution, though, and so she sent another delegation to secure Stephen's freedom, which, according to John of Worcester, offered, quote, Hostages, castles and great riches if the king were set free and allowed to recover his liberty, though not his crown. These too were rudely rejected. I don't think the Queen had any intention of giving up her husband's claim, but by sending repeated entreaties for peace, she was able to paint the Empress as being unreasonable, belligerent and therefore, crucially, unladylike. The Queen would be seen as the reasonable, feminine defender of her husband and child's right. The Empress as haughty and masculine. Refusing to give up, Matilda realised it would be all up to her to recover the crown for herself and her husband. She appointed William of Ypres her field commander, and they, quote, "...continued to fight against the Empress with all their might." At this point, they had basically lost Normandy, and their only territory in England was in the area that the Queen had secured earlier in the war, the lands around Kent and Surrey. This army was not going to be a serious threat to the Empress, but its proximity to London meant that should the new lady of the English make a mistake it would be ready to pounce. Luckily for the Queen, and unluckily for the Empress, she did. The Empress was a straight-up badass, but the problem with badasses is that they don't tend to be very good at pressing the flesh. The crusty male nobles of England were already unsure about accepting a woman as their ruler, and so what the Empress needed to do was go on a charm offensive. Instead, she just decided to be plain offensive, and belligerently demanded submission from everyone. She acted as if she were a man, and for the people of England, that was not acceptable. The Queen seized the opportunity and entered secret negotiations with the leaders of the City of London, offering them all sorts of rewards should they throw out the unladylike Empress. Supplementing this carrot, she also used the stick. According to the guest Stefani, the Queen's, magnificent body of troops raged most furiously around the city with plunder and arson, violence, and the sword. He goes on to say that the elders of London looked on in shock as the Empress did nothing as, quote, their land was stripped before their eyes, and reduced by the enemy's ravages to be a habitation for the hedgehog. The Queen was not messing about. On the day of the Empress's coronation, the people of London rose up against her, and, backed by the Queen's troops, they forced the Empress to flee to her stronghold of Oxford. When the people stormed Westminster, they found that the tables were still set for dinner. Such was the speed of her retreat. The Queen had won a major victory here, but what she did next was even more significant. Unlike the Empress, she conducted herself in a much more diplomatic manner in the capital. Using her famous diplomatic skill, she began to win back supporters to the royal cause. According to the guest of Stefani, quote, The Queen was admitted into the city by the Londoners, and, forgetting the weaknesses of her sex and a woman's softness, She bore herself with the valour of a man. Everywhere by prayer or price, she won over invincible allies. The most crucial person to win over was Stephen's brother Henry, the Bishop of Winchester. Henry had switched sides after the Battle of Lincoln, really out of a sense of self-preservation, but the position in the kingdom still very much favoured the Empress. Her armies controlled almost all of England, and she still had the king in custody. It would take a lot to persuade Henry to switch sides again. The guest relates it all. Quote, "...she humbly besought the Bishop of Winchester to take pity on his imprisoned brother and exert himself for his freedom, that, uniting all his effort with hers, he might gain her a husband, the people a king, the kingdom a champion. And the Bishop, moved by the woman's tearful supplications which she pressed on him with great earnestness, and by the dutiful compassion for a brother of his own blood that he felt very strongly often turned over in his mind how he could rescue his brother from the ignominy of bondage. This passage from the rather partisan of Stefani is one of my favourites from all medieval history because it shows just perfectly how the limits of female power in the period were thought of and how a woman could bend them to work for her. While the Empress ignored the cultural limitations on her actions, the Queen acted with incredible subtlety to soothe the egos of the men she manipulated. She was a master negotiator and statesman, but her true triumph was yet to come. Fury at the Bishop of Winchester for betraying her in her hour of need, though really she should not have been much surprised. The Empress quickly moved to Winchester in order to capture him and throw him in captivity along with his brother. Her army was led by her general, Robert of Gloucester, and quickly captured the city and laid siege to its castle. With the majority of the Empress's forces in one place, the Queen pounced. She led an army composed of mercenaries, Londoners and reinforcements from Boulogne, and pulled a Stalingrad, besieging the besiegers. Seeing the hopelessness of his position, and with provisions running short, Robert ordered a withdrawal, but the retreating army of the Empress was immediately set upon. The Empress managed to escape, but most of her army was destroyed and her general captured. Without Robert of Gloucester, the Empress had no hope of defeating the Queen's forces, so she was forced to do the unthinkable. They agreed to a prisoner exchange, Robert for Stephen. The exchange itself was hilariously complicated, so bear with me on this one. The Queen surrendered herself and her son William as hostage to Robert's wife Mabel. Then King Stephen was set free by Mabel and travelled to Winchester in order to free Robert. Robert then left his son at Winchester as a hostage with Stephen, while he then went to Bristol to free Matilda and her son, and then Matilda went to free Stephen. You would have thought that they could have done it an easier way, but clearly not. So, all the pieces went back on the board, but the Queen here was in her element. She had already established herself as the greatest diplomat in the kingdom, and, with support for the Empress' wakening, began to bring her supporters over to the royal side. While he had been kept in relative comfort by his captors, imprisonment had not done good things for Stephen's health, and so he spent the next year or so in pretty bad physical and mental health, leading him to lean even more heavily on his wife. The Queen was more than up to the task, managing to flip many nobles, in particular both Geoffrey de Mandeville, the custodian of the Tower, and the Earl of Chester, before travelling alone to Boulogne in 1142 to raise fresh funds and troops for a war that was dragging on and on. Later that year, though, Stephen recovered himself and began to assert himself more and more in the war, requiring far less assistance from his wife in military matters. The Queen spent these six years mainly in London, keeping the wheels of government turning. Even in an English anarchy, taxes still had to be collected and laws passed. In this regard, her role far more resembles the kind of role held by her predecessors, handling everyday government while the men did the fighting. By the end of the 1140s, however, the fighting had more or less died down into what historians have called the magnate's peace. Normandy was lost to the Queen, as it had been essentially conquered by the Empress's husband Geoffrey, and the war in England had reached stalemate. The outbreak of the Second Crusade, and the general lack of enthusiasm to continue the war, meant that fighting was largely confined to the odd skirmish and raid. Neither side really wanted to come to terms, but neither did they want to fight. Indeed, the only people really interested in continuing the fight were the next generation, led by the sons of the two belligerents, the queen's son Eustace, and the empress's son, Henry Fitz-Empress. Stephen and the empress were not going to live forever, so one of their sons was going to inherit. But which? In 1147, in preparation for her retirement from public life, the Queen knighted her son Eustace and handed over the title of Count of Boulogne in order to boost his profile, yet the mood of the times was moving towards Henry. Even the guest Stefani, which is very partisan towards Stephen, names Henry the, true heir. All the fighting in the next two years were led by Eustace and Henry, but it generally was fought between small numbers of troops queen then happened upon a scheme to get her son to inherit, crown him as a junior king, i.e. a king alongside her husband Stephen, but subordinate to him. This was something that had never happened before in England, but was common practice in Capetian France, and could trace precedents back to the emperors of Rome. Like the emperors, Matilda and Stephen knew it would be far easier to pass the crown on to someone who was already a king than someone who had no more claim to the throne than Henry for its empress. It was a good idea, but was vetoed by the Church. This infuriated the Queen, who refused to give up. For many years, the papacy and Stephen had disagreed over who should inherit the Archbishopric of York, with the Pope favouring a man called Henry Mundag. The reasons behind Stephen's objection are too complex to relate here, but the Queen persuaded Stephen to bite the bullet and accept him in return for papal support. Unfortunately, though, nothing came of it, and Eustace was never crowned. The Queen's final diplomatic mission took place in 1150 to meet the French King, who had recently returned from Crusade to renew their alliance against the Empress. Normandy was lost to the Empress, but a combined Anglo-French assault could yet win it back. She was very persuasive, and Louis did attack, but he was defeated by an army of Geoffrey of Anjou and forced to make peace. So far, I have largely presented Matilda of Boulogne as being an all-action, sweet-talking, soldier-leading, warrior-diplomat. And while this is all true, she had other strings to her bow, most notably her relationship with the Church. She showed a great interest in ascetic Christianity, or anchorism, the idea of secluding oneself in a small cell and devoting one's life to prayer. She gave an acre of land to a female hermit called Helmid to build some of these cells, some of which could be as small as eight feet square. They also patronised similar movements around Europe, including the Savignac movement in France. Stephen and Matilda also patronised more traditional Christian houses, such as the Cluniacs and the Cistercians. The Queen also personally supervised the final construction of Faversham Abbey, the place where she and Stephen were later to be buried. This was not the action of a Queen putting on an evangelical front. She was deeply interested in spirituality, and this was something that was thought of as being essential in queenship. She was also interested in the developing crusade movement, and gave the first English grant to the Knights Templar. In 1147, the Queen attempted to retreat from public life, and went to Canterbury to live in the monastery of St Augustine, though retirement did not at all suit her. The sources claim that she was bored senseless, and this meant that she still occasionally went out on royal business, such as that trip to France. Her health, though, was failing, and after a visit to Oxford in 1152, she fell suddenly ill and died at the age of forty-seven. Her body was carried and laid in state in London, before finally being laid to rest in her foundation of Faversham in Kent. After her death, the fight went out of the royal cause, and in the end, tragedy forced Stephen to come to terms. In eleven fifty-three, one year after the death of his mother, Eustace, Stephen's heir apparent, died. The loss of his beloved wife and son was terminal to Stephen's cause, and, with his own health failing, he came to terms with the Empress in the Treaty of Winchester. He would retain the throne until his death, but he recognised Matilda's son, Henry, as his heir. Henry would not have long to wait to gain the throne, as only one year later, Stephen joined his wife and son at Faversham. Matilda of Boulogne is, for me, the most underrated of all the queens of England. The shadow cast by her cousin and namesake, the Empress, and by her successor, Eleanor of Aquitaine, along with a relative lack of attention paid to her in the sources compared to some of her contemporary queens, has led to her to being little known. But as we can see, she was a badass. The comparison with the equally badass Empress is fascinating, as it really shows the skill of the Queen, that while the Empress is vilified in the sources, the Queen is celebrated, even in the sources that supported the Empress's cause. The Empress was a relentless warrior against the patriarchy. She attempted to present herself as a female king, a woman who had all the traits and actions that a man might have, but for the crusty men of the 12th century, this was more than they could stand. They were just about ready to accept her as their domina, or female overlord, but they expected her to act in a feminine way, be deferential, and accept their advice. They would never expect this from a king, but a king was a man, and the empress was not a man. The queen, on the other hand, was far more successful at exerting power than her cousin, she did have some great advantages. Firstly, she was using power granted to her from her husband, a workaround that worked very well for women in the period. This was also her second advantage. She was not trying to rule in her own right. She was just trying to twist the system to suit her. That said, she managed to lead armies, conduct high diplomacy, and essentially run the kingdom all on her own. No other queen in medieval history can claim this, in real terms, she exerted at least as much influence as the empress, yet her name is almost entirely unknown. The guest of Stefani said that she had the virile, courageous breast of a man, but the fortitude of a woman. It was on her that the entirety of her husband's cause rested, and without her, we may have had a queen regnant of England in 1141. Next time, we will dive into the life of England's most famous, or infamous medieval queen, Eleanor of Aquitaine, a queen of two kingdoms who was either an incestuous, adulterous traitor or a cultured, courageous survivor, depending on who you read.
0: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quints.